Welcome back to There Will Be Movies. I am your host, Benjamin Phillips, and we are presenting our 25 favourite movies of the 1990s. And I am joined, as always, by my intrepid co-host, who has watched this movie twice in the last 12 hours or whatever, Matthew Waters. This is true. I watched it all, and then my partner's very into true crime. All of that good stuff, serial killers. They wanted to watch it with me, but like the timing didn't work out. And so watched a little bit of it last night before bed, comfortable bedtime viewing, and then had enough time this morning before our scheduled start time to finish it. A great film to watch back to back, really. Infinitely bingeable. <laughs> it is actually pretty... I mean, you know, if you can get on board with the subject matter, it's actually quite a breezy watch, I would say. It, it, you don't feel any of the length, I wouldn't say. I mean, it's obviously shorter than Goodfellas, but it is quite an easy watch, as long as you've got a strong stomach for the violence and stuff. Well, I mean, that's the thing. Is like We're going to get onto this point later on, where like this movie is the template for basically the, the TV procedural mm-hmm. after this point like x-files is the biggest thing that's indebted to this but even things like csi and whatnot are just so heavily influenced by this style of session with murderers and serial killers and whatnot as someone who's watched the pilot for the x-files in the last month it's staggering how i mean it's known that dana scully is based on clarice but like it's shocking to like really watch the two in close proximity and it is interesting our first two movies spawned tv shows basically with the sopranos and the x-files spinning off of well not spinning off but you know so heavily inspired by two two movies that cast very large shadows let's put it that way (laughs) yeah no absolutely so in the case of silence the lambs what is your relationship to it is it similar to goodfellas where like this is just on the syllabus of movies that you have to watch to call yourself a cinephile that you watched (laughs) when you were like very young uh yeah and it's also just so memed isn't it i think we all knew these lines and these these things before we ever got a chance to watch the movie like i'm older than you so i don't know if you'll remember this but like itv which is in theory the biggest channel in the uk which fucks me up every time i learn that there's a lot of old people in the <laughs> yeah when they used to do movies in the ad breaks their little cutaway at the time they had these little fish that talked to each other and would quote movies and whatever and there was a fish that did the thing and i was a fucking child and i knew that i saw that hundreds of times probably because i think i recorded like batman forever and i had i I had that recorded and i would watch it dozens of times and it had that segment so i probably was exposed to the you know that hundreds and hundreds of times before i ever knew what it was and the whole it puts the lotion on its skin thing like that is in so many things long before you see the movie and it's just like if you really think about that line absent of seeing it that's a weird fucking line but yeah you know my brother is like an enormous fan of very creepy like murder books you know, I'm not saying my brother is a psychopath. However, he is a sucker for anything where people make stitch together human skin to make a body or a, or whatever. It's a very specific thing to be very into. But there you go. Uh, so he's always, always, always loved this movie. He's read all of the books. I, was, I guess should address that. Like, have you read uh, the original, like Red Dragon, Silence of the Lambs, etc.? Well, I was, I was going to do my embarrassing. Oh, sorry. Um, sorry. My embarrassing link to the, what I watched before this movie that I didn't understand was a reference. 
reference is um, Clerks 2. Okay, Good Fly Horses, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Where he, where, he fully, where he fully does the, like, Oh, yeah, the the, oh my god, you saw you saw Clerks 2 before Silence of the Lambs? Yes. Oh my goodness, we need to talk about this at some point. <laughs> Not now. Clerks 2 2006, so I'm 14 years old. It's just one of those things oh, where I haven't gotten disgusting. to Silence of the Lambs yet. <laughs> okay. And, yeah, I guess that's the other one, is that, would you fuck me? Like, that whole scene yes. is um, iconic as well. But in the case of the books, no, I've not read any of the books. A very good friend from university has an absolutely love them i have oh, the only things i've seen in the hannibal universe are this movie and the, the hannibal tv series okay i've seen red dragon not very recently at all i haven't seen so red dragon the book gets turned into manhunter the movie yes brian, cox, brian cox, cox is playing fucking hannibal lecter bombs they give this studio the rights for free because they're like yeah fuck it wash our hands of it they smash it and then they go back and adapt Red Dragon themselves. And I've seen yeah, that. Hannibal, it's Hannibal not comes great. first. <laughs> Hannibal's 2001, which is Ridley Scott, and then they get everyone's favourite hack director, Brett Ratner, to do a remake of Red Dragon. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Hannibal's yeah. the sequel, Red Dragon's the prequel, and then there's Hannibal Rising. But that features like no one that's involved with anything. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But just in terms of like the canon of the books, I think. Mm. And is, is Hannibal yeah. Rising another prequel? Or... Yeah, Hannibal Rising's Hannibal's Childhood. Oh, okay. But you get all kinds of weird things. So in the case of, and, and this is a, a huge tangent now, is you have <laughs> on the Hannibal TV show, Brian Fuller is like, we're going to do Silence Slams at some point. We don't have the rights to the book, but we're going to smash our adaption of Red Dragon. We're going to do all the stuff before Red Dragon and really set up this interesting universe. And then we're going to go ask the rights for Silence Slams because yeah. for whatever reason, the, the packages are separate now where yeah. Silence Slams is a separate book deal to Red Dragon and Hannibal. You can get two or you can get one. <laughs> and so the show gets cancelled before they get to do Silence Lambs. It's still like on I think everyone involved in that show's bucket list to do a Silence Lambs adaption adaptation with that cast. But the thing is you then have the fact that Silence Lambs is currently airing on like CBS All Access with Clarice, which is their version of Silence the Lambs, but they don't have the rights to Hannibal Lecter character. <laughs> Could they just misspell so, it like they do in I forget which one, either Manhunter or Everything since Silence of the Lambs misspells Hannibal Lecter. Like one of them I, I puts can't... a K in it. I think Manhunter puts a K in it, and I don't know if that's book accurate. Or I think not. I think that's just for the film that okay. they do. Okay. I read this that like the the show was attempting to mop up all of the different books, and they just didn't have the rights to the Silence of the Lambs original characters, and it's like, gee, like what a weirdly convoluted. <laughs> canon what a cinematic universe this is i mean they do a really good job like from what i've heard the red dragon adaptation that's like half of season three is really good they mm. sort of do a proto hannibal adaptation in the heart first half of season three mm. it's just they just didn't get to do clarice uh, but there are like characters who are very much in the mode of clarice yeah. in the hannibal tv show it's just they never got the actual rights to do science of the lambs yeah, and then you've also got, like, again, we're very tangenting here, but, like, Buffalo Bill is partially inspired by the real serial killer Ed Gein, I think his name is, who mm. is in Mindhunter, not Manhunter, as the guy they're consulting with on how serial killers, you know, when they're investigating the first quote-unquote serial killer. So it, it all is very knotty, and, and, and obviously you got that Ted Bundy helped catch the like, the Green River killer, or the, the something river killer I don't know yes. but, so that's where you get this consult a serial killer to catch a serial killer plot that is integral to Silence of the Lambs which we should actually talk about now rather than everything <laughs> else but yeah <laughs> so let's get the cut off the head so some context on this movie this is obviously directed by Jonathan Demi who is someone who 
I think until very recently had kind of been seen as this guy who had this like one fluke incredible movie as like the narrative he's like a journeyman director who had this one fluke where he wins best director for this movie and then that's kind of the only good thing about his career which I think is like a downright lie Mm-hmm. Like, because I spent a lot of last year watching an awful lot of his movies. His 80s comedies are some of the most interesting and humanist comedies that you'll find. I mean, we discussed something wild very briefly last week on Goodfellas. Marriage to the Mob is fantastic with a fantastic mm-hmm. Michelle Pfeiffer performance. Who he wanted for Clarice, but yes. she, she wanted $2 million, which at the time was too much money. <laughs> and then obviously he kind of has, he follows this up with Philadelphia, which is his apology for this movie, but we'll get to why it's an apology for this movie. <laughs> he kind of disappears and does some really weird movies like Truth About Charlie, Manchurian Candidate. He has a late career comeback with Rachel Getting Married, A Master Builder, which is a movie that just does not exist in any way, shape, or form. Doesn't he do a lot of like concert DVDs? He like... does. I mean, Stop Making Sense is my favourite movie of his, which is his Talking Heads okay. live film, which is oh, that's just is that is that the one that like the, the one, one. Yeah, yes, yeah, with yeah. the big suit and all the rest of it when like oh, uh, John uh, yeah, John but, Byrne. Byrne comes on stage and is wearing the with, like. Just just does the like, tape recorder yeah, doing yeah, the drum yeah. sounds. Yeah, absolutely incredible. He did Justin Timberlake's concert film a couple of years ago, which is like from any other director would be just like, well, this is a bog standard concert yeah. movie. Except the demi includes interviews with the like the teamsters who are building the sets and stuff like that. And it's just like, so you guys have been traveling around the entire U.S. building these sets like every couple of nights and stuff like that. What are your feelings about doing this? And it, again, it adds a real humanist quality yeah. to yeah. to what would be Justin Timberlake, who probably should. Have been cancelled long before we got to 2020 Experience World Tour. Yeah. Free Britney. Um, but yeah, Jonathan Demi is just, I think any other director tackling this and this movie fails in some like fairly significant regards because he is such a humanist, he, he lends a feel to this movie that gives a real human heart. Yes, for sure. Like that Clarice's compassion is her, lets her cut through all this macho bullshit. Like it's very telling that I think there are two women in the movie that aren't murder victims other than Clarice and it's like there's that one cop and there's that lady she interviews in the town and everyone out it's just a sea of men who are just methodic you know like coldly going about their business whether they're serial killing or being cops or whatever and she's the only human person in the damn movie yeah um, yep. but yeah this is a screenplay written by Ted Talley who mm-hmm. nothing really else of note he obviously is the person who adapts Red Dragon later on I think he's got some credits on like Shrek to a Madagascar but like <laughs> the bangers <laughs> <laughs> the bangers but like yeah so like not this is his like one script which he wins an Oscar for as well of course adapted from the book by Thomas Harris Arts, The Lambs and uh, this movie obviously comes out uh, February 1991 on Valentine's Day yeah they wanted to put they were worried about its mass appeal for obvious reasons because the appetite isn't there at the time for such grisly dark shit they talked about putting it out straight to video unfathomable to think of and then they shove it out on valentine's day almost daring it to fail and it does not <laughs> yeah and and also of note it obviously sticks in the mind for for so long because it's very rare for a movie released that early in the year to end up winning best picture yeah it dispelled that narrative that you have to release at a certain time of year to to win an oscar it is interesting because obviously I assume part of the director DVD thing is because Orion Pictures are going through such turmoil at this point in time. I think they actually filed for bankruptcy yeah. 
in 91, even though they have this movie, mm-hmm. which obviously makes a shitload of money, off a $19 million budget, ends up making $273 million. Well, they um, they get Jodie Foster by letting her direct. Which obviously she is now far more comfortable in, isn't she? Like, she is now more of a director than she is an actor. A little Man Tate, they let her direct. It's just really interesting that, like, you know, this career-defining, like, this has got to be the movie for everyone involved in it. That it's, like, seen as a bargaining tip chip to get something you want and the thing you want is like obscure and no one's ever heard of (laughs) and that people had to be sort of talked into making this movie but context is everything and yeah like now it would be a layup to make this movie but back then difficult thing to make a movie about. I mean, but that's the thing is, I think it also shows that Jodie Foster at this point in her career, like obviously Jodie Foster's been around since, I mean, Taxi Driver's one of her first credits, isn't it? Yeah. When she's, well, she, a child. she's so young. <laughs> she's so young in that movie. She she hangs around for so long and this movie is obviously a second Oscar because she wins one two years before this for The Accused. And she gives but, that big that, speech when she wins that everyone has inferred to be uh, referencing her sexuality. I, she was, I assume, still in the closet at the time this was all happening. I mean, she, she's one of those people who, like, I'm still not sure if she's ever, like... Officially come out, come out. yeah, yeah. yeah like, I mean, obviously, <laughs> we know that she has, like, a, a long-term partner and whatnot, but it's just one of those things where it's just like, have you actually yeah. verbally said that you, yeah. are, you are a LGBTQ woman? She wins and she's she's talking about, you know, the struggles of being an actress and, and going my background and going through what I've gone through, but yeah. But before we jump on, we need to do some context in the Academy Awards, because we keep on mentioning yeah, this movie on some Oscars. Yeah, you kind of stealing my thunder here yeah so at the 64th academy awards science of the lambs fucking cleans up it wins best picture it wins best director best actor for anthony hopkins best actress for jodie foster best screenplay for ted tally the other movies nominated for best picture that year were beauty and the beast bugsy jfk and the prince of tides so i don't want to say a soft <laughs> Little run. There, there, are, there are two solid like A plus movies in that list, uh-huh. and then the rest are like I could take a take a movie. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I do know there are people who really like JFK. Yeah, I mean Oliver Stone is uh, yeah I, he has not really come up much in any of our real world dealings, both podcast and written and by anybody. I don't think. I think Mike mm. might have covered one Oliver Stone thing at some point, but yeah. What he's... would you have, What would you have wanted to do? Because I think I know what Oliver Stone movie is the one that I would oh, be I inclined to cover. I'm not saying I desperately want to cover an Oliver Stone movie, but like... It, it feels though that like the 80s are the one where you either do Platoon, Platoon or Born on the Fourth of yeah. July. Especially as like, we are so uniquely unequipped to discuss <laughs> the 90s run of like JFK and whatnot. Like, I mean, obviously, A, we weren't alive, and B, we do not have the cultural resonancy of JFK as a person or anything like America that. America doesn't have culture, Ben, it's fine. This is probably one of the biggest clean sweeps in Oscar history in terms of I winning think, I think everything. Five in the history of the Academy Awards. And also notable for being classified as a horror and winning Best Picture. The only one to win. I think four or maybe five have been nominated, which we did discuss when we did Get Out, in that if you're good, they try and reclassify you as a thriller. Well, that's the thing. It's like the movies that they, they tend to credit this as is Exorcist, Jaws, Silence of the Lambs, Sixth Sense, Black Swan, Get Out. That's it. Black Swan is the other weird one. Of yeah. those, <laughs> I'd say Exorcist, Sixth Sense, Black Swan, and Get Out are the only ones I would say are like pure horror. And even then, Black Swan is more of the psychological sort, where Silence of the Lambs is like, because it has become so indebted to kind of the serial killer and the TV procedural, the BBFC actually re rated this from an 18 to a 15 during its re release because we have become so desensitized to the <laughs> 
long time doing this movie at this point. Uh, and it's like, uh, yeah, you watch this movie and you go, yes, it's creepy. And yes, there are two uses of cunt in the first, like, 15 minutes of the movie. Like, <laughs> and a man throws semen at all. <laughs> Which I don't know how like, certification falls on bodily fluids. But yeah, like, I wouldn't at all call it a horror movie. And, and while there's a lot of grisly stuff... How much of it do you see in real time? You know, like it's a lot of photos of corpses and coming across bodies after they've been mutilated. Like you see him almost camply take the bite out of the guy's face, but it both is and isn't super, super violent. And I can see why yeah, it would get are. re-rated that way. Well, I went to the recent season premiere of Harley Quinn the other day, and the nose-biting scene in that is more horrifying than what yeah. is in this movie. And that's a, <laughs> a cartoon that's pro- probably also an 18, but just the, the stark difference in terms of like how we make content from the 90s to the 2010s. Yeah. And I think another thing at play here is neither of these serial killers are after our protagonist. And, mm. and Hannibal makes a real point of, like, he has no interest in killing Clarice, and Buffalo Bill doesn't even know she fucking exists until she knocks on his door so it's i think that helps as well is that the threat is not coming at us as the point of view character it's just they are things that exist Uh, in this story the threat to clarice is the patriarchy yeah well, I mean, she does is. go into the home of a serial killer, but, you know, until then, I mean, yes. Yeah, but the, yeah, the, 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 the dwelling threat is, is men, because they're the worst. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so so the three movies that won five Academy Awards to get back on that track, it happened one night in 1934, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest in 1975, and Sansa Lambs in 1991. Jeez. There have been no movies to have... Uh, one movie has won four since then, which is mm. American Beauty, which is a movie that mm. I think has had a huge critical reevaluation in the 20th century sense. But yeah, it's just it's interesting that like this movie has swept up, and nowadays it feels like when movies go to the Academy Awards, they kind of you have like maybe you have a couple of good actors, but you don't necessarily have like the best direction or maybe your best picture material. But like it's not because the acting is the thing that's pushing you across the line, and it feel, and it feels like you're also more likely to have things like director picture splits that you wouldn't have done 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, do you think they make a conscious choice to spread things out a little bit these days, or I, I mean, I genuinely don't know, but it is one of those interesting interesting things where like the last movie I think to even be nominated in all five categories is American Hustle <laughs> which is a bad movie yeah, yeah. sorry bad time to be drinking water when you said that but again, but again like you think you think of things that won best picture and stuff like that and it's like Moonlight and it's like cool I could see this getting four of the nominations but then you come up blank and you go like well it doesn't have a lead actress like it can't be even nominated in that category and so you have this weird thing where it feels like movies nowadays where like they get so hyper focused on certain elements that you just lose out on that all rounded nature of this movie I mean even debatably in this movie like is Hopkins a lead actor it is the second shortest performance to win an Oscar for lead actor I think like a few seconds shy of 25 minutes and like one minute longer than the than the shortest and that's like the trivia piece for the movie is how little he's in it and so what a massive impact he has on it and I mean there probably is a debate where it's like for in terms of minutes of screen time to overall impact on a movie this probably is one of the performances where uh-huh. it's like it does overshadow the entire movie even down to the fact that like and Hopkins ducks out of the movie about an hour and 15 minutes in mm-hmm. hour and a half maybe and kind of the big question you have at the end of it is like well, well where has he gone <laughs> like, <laughs> what, what is Hannibal up to whilst we're we're resolving the the actual plot of the movie yeah I I guess I'll say it now. 
I have 99% positive things to say about the movie. My 1% gripe is I don't know how good of a job they do of trying to balance those scales between Lecter and Bill, and then whatever Clarice has got going on, you know? Like, Lecter just so dominates the narrative and what's going on on the screen and, like, what people are talking about. I mean, I understand in the first sort of half hour, an hour, you're on the trail of this killer, you're trying to uncover their identity, but even as you launch into the ending, you have this incredible escape scene and then you just hard pivot over to Bill and it's like, I don't care about Bill, what just happened with Hannibal Lecter? (laughs) And then I guess it would be that, and some of it isn't their fault, like, they probably didn't know that this was going to be such an incredible performance from Hopkins, but he's inarguably a more interesting and engaging character and that this happens in two of these books slash movies that he is a sort of side piece while there's a in theory the actual villain is somebody completely different and they both just get forgotten because of hopkins it is one of those fascinating things well and i think sansa lambs does a good job in that in red dragon there is a relationship between hannibal lecter and will graham before the movie exists yes. and so like the whole point of red dragon is like you need to go see the person who almost murdered you to try and bring this this case in there whereas sansa lambs is like this is just a bolt of lightning performance Clarice has no relationship to him afterwards obviously the sequel to this is very much focused on their relationship and how it becomes this weird kind of like Stockholm Syndrome relationship between the two of them mm. in a in a weird way that some people are not a big fan of but yeah as you, as you say it is interesting that like for the most part for the first hour of this movie every single time you see Hannibal it's in the context of Clarice is going to see him or we are getting some context on Buffalo Bill or something from the scenes and then the hard pivot into after Clarice leaves and you find out that he's like managed to pocket part of the mechanism of the pen and he and he busts out and it's like you just get this like incredibly tense like 15-20 minute segment that's just so good and then there is no more Hannibal for the rest of the movie I don't know if they needed to have less Hannibal or more Bill or or what but I do think that is a slightly imperfect aspect of it, is that the legacy of this movie is Hannibal Lecter, and like he is the villain of the movie, but he's not the villain of the movie. I mean, he's obviously a villainous character, but the the villain, the thing the plot is centred around is Buffalo Bill, who has, what, ten minutes of screen time? <laughs> Some of that is to hide his identity and like make him mysterious and all of this, but I think a tiny bit more focus could have gone to Bill or Jame. But you've got Anthony Hopkins for one role and you've got Ted Levine for the other. So I guess that's that. I mean, I don't think Ted Levine does a bad job. But oh, you I think right. he's, he's good, but... He, it's just a less compelling performance or yeah. less like magnetic performance. Obviously, Ted Levine hasn't had the same success that Anthony Hopkins had afterwards. Like, he plays a lot of cops. <laughs> plays a lot of cops. He ends up 10 years later as in The Fast and Furious, <laughs> of all things. He's one of the um, people trying to get Flubber and Flubber. Um, <laughs> his most iconic performance. He's the warden on Shutter Island, isn't he? Yes, he is. Yeah, that's probably his highest profile thing in the last however long. There's a show called The Alienist, which sounds bad, but maybe it's secretly got a cult following. I don't know. I think he's in that. It's just interesting that what should have been, you know, his story. And actually, the thing we need to talk about later, I think there is a similar aspect there where certain things get remembered and certain other things do not (laughs) about (laughs) his character. Let's do the Buffalo Bill deep dive. Because obviously, I think the big backlash at the time this movie comes out is the transphobic elements to this movie, which are undeniable that there is transphobia baked into the text. That's sort of what I was getting at, is the legacy of the movie is that it's incredibly transphobic. Transphobic, and all people remember 
is this guy that they kind of make a freak of him that he kills people because he is a crossdresser and because he has piercings and tattoos like he's a pervert clearly like of course he murders people they put in the movie and it's the line that no one it just doesn't get talked about they quite plainly come out and say he's not actually trans and i think that's the thing that kind of gets forgotten about this exactly, movie. Like, yeah. I, I don't i think it is an important line apparently the book dives into it more where they get more into the fact that like bill is not a transsexual transgender person and even if he were that she immediately dismisses the theory because trans people are passive generally by nature and everything like that and like that that is a whole talking point but all of that is forgotten and swept under the rug and the me- and the prevailing memory is this man tucking his penis between his legs and and dancing to goodbye horses and, and stuff and it's like ha, oh, look at the freak <laughs> You know, it's that thing of, like, I'm not saying it's the same, but we talked about it with Wolf of Wall Street, we've talked about it with Joker, of, like, at what point is it not the film's responsibility to make the audience be, like, adults? Because they're quite plainly putting it out there. Bill is not trans... He's not a trans person. He is a victim of abuse who is seeking an identity and has come to an incorrect conclusion for himself. I don't think the text is transphobic. However, the legacy of the movie and what people boil it down to and what people remember is incredibly transphobic. That they are making a one-to-one thing of like, ah, the freak is a, is a cross-dresser, you know, like, all of this shit. Yeah. And it's like, what more could they have done? Except maybe spend even more time with Bill to, like, delve into his backstory a little bit more. I'm just going to quickly read. So Emily Vanderworth, one of the critics at Fox, who is a, a trans person, who was also on the Blank Check episode, did a Twitter thread earlier on this year talking about this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just going to quickly read some stuff that she said. I love that. Uh, I love Sansa Lamb. John Contemi is maybe my favourite American director of all time. I do not believe Sansa Lamb's is transphobic, especially for its era. I do believe it propped up transphobia, if that makes sense. Yeah. I may be reading too much of what I know and love about Demi into the scenes where Hannibal is like, Buffalo Bill is not a transsexual, but the film does seem to earnestly try to safeguard itself against us reading the character as trans poorly, but the intent is clear. Totally. And you see it all the time, misappropriation of of art and and writing to prop up uh, like a bad faith argument. The number one thing TERFs do is say that like men are going to pretend to be women so they can assault women in bathrooms when really that just does not happen I don't think you see it constantly you see right wing people like wielding well intentioned left wing art and sort of warping it and misinterpreting it to to support their own arguments and yeah it's just such a shame that that is the legacy of the character yeah. when they put it right there he is not trans and trans people are not violent <laughs> but it is such an interesting thing where like because it is a movie about a man inhabiting women's spaces and inhabiting literal women's skin it's very hard to kind of separate that even with the kind of the one-line dialogue and so like i understand the intent is there for it not to be read that way i think they're just sort of relying on you being an adult and a lot of people are unfortunately Mm. not adults and like you know even if you ignore that and you trace it as i was saying like you know in a time where people are a little bit more conservative and harry steven says oh this woman's clearly from out of town she has three ear piercings (laughs) and stuff like that and glittery nail polish that bill is canonically or the unreliable narrator of Lecter that like they had a homosexual relationship with one of the murder victims that he does have an interest in sewing or a skill at sewing even more so even if he doesn't go to the extreme of making a woman suit which is you know a fucked up thing to do the interest in the 
the makeup and the hair and the piercings and the tattoos and stuff. It is all very, like, for a long time, all of these things were just packaged together. Anything that is not heteronormative is bad. And then also for these people to be serial killers and stuff like that. It's a trope for a long time yeah, that it, we're, we're finally it's, it's, sort of away from and like you know everyone has tattoos and, and this that and the other but like for a long time it's 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 like the uniform and it's like these are the habits of a of a deviant you know I mean, obviously it's it's a common thing in movies as well the idea of like men inhabiting women's spaces like you have psycho you have the crying game as two things that are hugely damaging to the discourse around trans people yeah. even though i think it would be fair to say that neither of them feature like quote-unquote trans people i mean i, I game maybe less so but psycho is definitely not a he is not trans in the way that you would imagine a, a trans person to be no but it's just like now it's rare to see i mean any kind of cross-dressing is treated as either comedic or what a fucking freak there are no just positive representations of cross-dressers out there and yeah it's, it's it, fucked it is that, <laughs> i mean I, I, there's the Lindsay ellis video that she does on transphobia where she literally just takes here's all the scenes in movies of people reacting to finding out that a woman his genitals do not match her like here's ace ventura throwing up for 10 minutes <laughs> yeah exactly exactly and it's one of those things where it's like oh god this is really sickening to see this kind of stuff and it obviously still happens nowadays i think a lot of the discourse around science alarms this year was popped up because of the jk rowling book that came out who is a notorious transphobe literally wrote a book in which the killer was a cross-dresser indeed it was a wonderful tool in getting a turf out of my life as i said as i as i alluded to earlier like it was a colleague of mine who like you know i was friends with them while they were working there they they were let go by the company and i was like you know oh, how, how are you doing and like they just casually mentioned oh oh yeah read the new jk rowling i was like why and then they just launched into a tirade and then after about a solid day of arguing i was like i'm just not going to talk to you ever again <laughs> because fuck this <sighs> slightly weird comment if you can get past the fact he is wearing a scalped woman's hair <laughs> I think he's actually quite beautiful in that moment. Like, he's got this lithe body, and, like, I'd really like his taste in music, and just, I don't know. <laughs> he's kind of free, and, like, at watching that scene, like, as a teenager or whatever, and, like, you know, decades earlier, and, and all of this stuff, it's like, oh, wow, what a weirdo. But to watch it now with hopefully a more sort of mature mindset and everything, I'm like, this is oddly, in a, in a bubble, kind of nice. But then he is a serial killer that's making a lady sleep. I mean, there is the weird thing, which obviously, like, the movie says that he was rejected from having surgeries. Yes. Um, that yes. he thought would, would fix his life and stuff like that. And there's that thing where it's like, well, what happens if he finishes the suit and it mm -hmm. doesn't do what it needs to do to his mental state? Yeah, you see this everywhere. People have a hole in their heart and they try everything to fill it and, and a lot of the time it needs to come from within but you know you see it with athletes like oh if I win a championship I will finally not be a broken person oh I won one and I f still feel this way oh no and and the similar thing here and like it's quite subtle and again it's where we maybe could have spent some more time with Bill but like he has like Nazi memorabilia and, and there are other things around his house that point to he has tried many different lifestyle choices clubs feels a little bit of a <laughs> oversimplification but you know he has suffered abuse and he is clearly he hates himself and he is seeking something to pin his entire entire personality around and none of it has worked and this is just the latest yeah. adventure you have readings like he has obviously dipped into right-wing ideology uh -huh. he's dipped into homosexuality 
he's obviously now dipping into literally inhabiting women's spaces. It's spaces and faces. Interesting layered character who sadly, just because of the trope that inhabits and the way that people have the bad faith readings of them becomes transphobic. And obviously some of the criticism of that, of this other movie wasn't actually aimed at like too many people, but some like obviously with Jodie Foster, who I believe at this point was seen as being a member of the LGBTQ community without having coming out. Some of it was launched at her in regards to this. And I know John and Demi felt very guilty about this, which is why his follow-up movie to this is Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. which is maybe not an ideal movie for him to do. He does make kind of a weird crib of it where this kind of trilogy of movies of Sansa Lambs, Philadelphia and Beloved are like, is this your story to tell? But Philadelphia is the first mainstream depiction of the AIDS crisis, admittedly featuring straight actors and directed by a straight man and stuff like that. Of but course. Jonathan Demme was, was well known in the New York theatre circles and stuff like that, especially from his time doing Talking Heads and Swimming to Cambodia and stuff like that. And obviously New York is one of these places which was hit massively hard by the AIDS crisis. I remember hearing a story from someone who whose parents would have photos around the house of all their friends and their child asked them like, oh, where are all these people in these photos? And they're, like, mm. well, they're all dead. One of those incredibly tragic things. He makes Philadelphia as like a mere culpa to the, to the gay community. I think Philadelphia is a perfectly fine movie but it's just sort of like did you make it worse I think it is an incredibly empathetic movie. It's yeah, just yeah, one of the yeah. things where it's, like, where it's like, is this the right choice for you to do? Obviously, the controversies there are more about the fact that like it is based on the life of a real person, but they tried to deny that it was, and all these kind of things. I do think Philadelphia is a very good movie, but it is again, it is such a weird funny issue. And then he follows up with Beloved, where he is hand chosen by Oprah to direct one of the like most acclaimed African American novels of that time. Jonathan Demi as a person is putting like he makes a movie centered on the female experience. With Clarice and the law enforcement and the patriarchy and whatnot. He makes a movie about the AIDS crisis and being gay, and then he makes a movie about slavery and and being black and whatnot and none of these are his places to make but he is empathetic enough that they kind of go like this isn't the worst version that it could be but there is a discussion to be had about whether or not you are the correct person to have done this as a piece of media you mentioned the, the you know the patriarchy stuff i don't know if you want to pivot into that for a moment we can come back to to the two lovely serial killers but <laughs> so much of the movie is centered around trying to shock a woman kind of thing like you've got you know the dickhead doctor is it chilton or i think um, showing her this Polaroid right up close to her face. Like, oh, look what he did to the last one. And, like, these incredibly violent men. Migs is just a monster. Just so much of it is that way of, like, they are trying to rattle her almost. And that she won't be rattled is kind of the central theme. I mean, she has her... So the FBI helped make this movie. They thought it would be a good recruiting tool. I think they're actually kind of right. There are sort of a burgeoning wave of people that want to be FBI agents because of the rise of this kind of serial killer stuff. And a female agent actually advised Jodie Foster the the crying by the car scene. And like, you know, you have to be sort of tough when you're actually face to face with all these people. And then just your car can be a really great moment to just vent because it is a horrific thing that you are dealing with all the time. And like they famously, most characters look directly to camera. Clarice often looks slightly off camera. So you, you know, we are always from her point of view. We are almost never from anyone else's. 
shots like at the gathering of, of at the funeral or whatever and it's just a, a room of men who are just sort of staring at Clarice kind of thing yeah, and... I, I, I love those repeated shots because you have it as well like when she's getting in the in the elevator at the FBI headquarters and it's just yeah. her being so tiny in comparison to all these like huge FBI mm. men that are like like flanked alongside her and stuff like that like yeah. it, it's a great use of going like she is existing in a in a man's world essentially mm-hmm. even the the bug boys when she takes the moth to them and like you know one of them is like almost laughably creepy and they're just sort of like gawping up at her and and leering at her and at the autopsy you know like the men are like you know the photographer who's i mean it's repetition is the thing where she is a junior agent and we can never forget that but um you know that he is just right up close and just taking his photos going about his business and she is like a little bit disturbed by it but like this is ostensibly her first corpse up close on a, on a table like that you know and i think they do a good job of never making her seem like the weak frail screamish woman it's more about that it, it's inexperience versus women just aren't tough because as we said at the top like her compassion is ultimately what makes her uniquely qualified to do this because she forms that um relationship with Lecter where he finds her interesting and any number of big tough men have attempted to interview this guy and he's just sent them around in circles and stuff and you know you see him fuck with that senator later on and, and, and as far as like women written by men go <laughs> it's probably one of the better female characters like lead female characters in movies like it, it is this iconic role and, and, as, and as we said you know inspires Dana Scully who arguably is treated worse than Clarice in the history of the X-Files and in real life as, as she is famously not paid as much as David Duchovny and all this stuff it's a three pillar movie it, it, it's Clarice it is Lecter and then it is the stuff with, with Bill and I do really really like Ted Levine and Brooke Smith who, who plays the, the, the kidnapped victim Catherine Smith they really really got along very well on set <laughs> and like Jodie Foster like made fun of them like that like she had like Stockholm Syndrome or whatever because they were such good friends all three kind of have to work really well and, and while like there are some minor failings in like giving Bill more screen time it is a suitably creepy and unique and memorable portion of the movie and like this fucked up house with a well underneath it and stuff like that and the Clarice bit works really well and obviously Lecter works the best but yeah um, I think it is important you get all that it is inarguably a little bit iffy for a man to be directing it but he did kind of I think he captured part of the experience and I'm sure many women see those shots of just like 20 men just gawping at them and are like hmm yeah that's that's daily life. <laughs> yeah, I, I just, I love that, like, every conversation she has with a man, even the one, like, the only person who doesn't treat her, the only one who respects her really is Lecter, mm-hmm. which I think, like, even even Jack Crawford, who you think is, like, mm. vaguely on the level, there's just an undercurrent to the way that he treats her that feels like he's still, like, underrating her and, like, yeah. u- just using her and stuff like that, whereas Lecter is literally like, no, I, I want to know more about you. I think you are an interesting person for the, the life choices that you have made mm-hmm. and whatnot. I mean, he does try and rattle her a little bit, but not to the degree that is standard. Like, even like, you look at how he talks to the senator, where he's, like, you know, talking about her nipples and stuff like that. He doesn't do that with Clarice. It is just a little bit more, you know, he calls it polite and, 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 and discourteous and all this stuff. Like, the only time he goes off at her is when she has that, like, opening scene where she, like, very clumsily tries to pivot into him doing the survey. And then he does his, like, psychodissection of her life and stuff like that. And yeah. I, I do think it's interesting that, like, he obviously gets facts wrong about mm-hmm. her. I, I 
obviously for the most part he's right but i think the movie has that, that fascinating transition from like when she's like storming out of the building and it feels like a memory bubbling up where she's like suppressing it suppressing it suppressing it and then she like bursts outside mm. and the memory just overcomes her and she has that memory of her father arriving home and it's just a fantastic transition on behalf of like Taku Fujimoto who's the cinematographer here Craig McKay who's the the editor and just like it's it's a wonderfully done thing and just as soon as this like memory is over she's back and by the car and starts crying as you you mentioned earlier and like the only other time she has this like just strong sense memory kind of thing is when she's in the funeral home and she mm-hmm. flashes back to her father's own funeral and stuff like that and it's just yeah. these fantastic transitions that show that like the way she's being treated by these men in her life is causing almost trauma flashbacks or, or whatever where it's like Hannibal treating her in that way having the semen thrown at her just kind of gets to her as well as that that moment where Jack Crawford kind of goes like oh we can't discuss the sexual violence of this case in front of the woman yeah and like he even um, like tries to play it downplay it to her afterwards when they're talking about it of like oh you understand and it's no big deal and she's like it, it is a big deal sir and he's like yeah okay and just goes back to sleep and he has sought her out because she is a young woman like let's try something different like, let's present Lecter with young female flesh and see what she makes see how she does kind of thing and it's not like I see promise in your career or anything and you know Lecter makes that comment of like do you think he wants to fuck you and there is that like sort of half second hesitation at the end when he offers the handshake and it's like is she shaken by the events of everything that's happened has she taken that comment from Lecter to heart is she slightly resentful of Crawford for some of his subtle sexism you know taking her off the case kind of thing and like oh no no we'll go catch him oh we definitely couldn't have done it without you but um if you could just chill in the town while we go make the arrest and by the way that you know an all-time movie fake out as they are storming the house and they've got the wrong one and clarice is alone with the killer the fantastic like they're bringing the doorbell it's uh-huh. from the perspective of the SWAT agents and just these huge massive alarm bells are going off in the basement <laughs> and it's like oh god what's about to happen what's about to happen it's just cheering smiling Clarice on the doorstep yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I, I do just Scott Glenn I think has a very like thankless performance in this but I think he is yeah. very good at kind of yes, what, he, what Jack Crawford needs to be it's wild seeing him so much younger it's not like he's young here but like but yeah like this idea that jack crawford is this sort of hot shot like he's renowned in the fbi and like lecter knows him by name he's like, oh your crawford sent a junior agent to me yeah i mean it's just it's one of those things where obviously a lot of these characters are in hannibal Lawrence fishburne famously plays him in the tv show i think that's a little bit more of an involved performance where he is the like third lead of the show in a way that he isn't here where jack crawford is almost like a a, a cipher almost or like mm. a means to an end to kind of get across Yes, there are sympathetic people who are maybe looking out for women, but it's not not always altruistic in the ways in which they're doing it. But I mean, if you add up all the screen time, he's probably got the third most. Like even yeah, even in his sporadic appearances, and you know, you've got Anthony Hield as as the absolute douchebag, Doctor Chilton. And oh, Chilton is just such a good asshole. It's such a fantastic ending of like I'm having, having a friend, friend for, dinner. for dinner. Such a good line, and like you know that like he hits on her in his office. And then continues to be an absolute dickhead on the way down. And then she's like, why don't I go in alone? He's like, you could have told me in the office. I was like, I don't think she knew you were a cunt in your office, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and him to like lord it over Lecter as he's being transferred. And Lecter just staring at the pen like that. And like, it's the genius of movie villains is to imply and not show. Like, there is no logical, reasonable way he got that pen 
but he stares at it and then he has it and it's it's genius <laughs> and his escape i think especially for the time was actually like really inventive and grisly and well shot and everything like for him to have you know the very unique setting the sort of temporary jail in the courthouse and oh you have that, that fantastic shot of like after he's like bludgeoned the two guards and and the SWAT team like bust into the room and you have and what you just have the body of the charles <laughs> napier is just strung from the like flags in the ceiling with his guts hanging out and stuff like that yeah like they don't really dwell on that but in the book isn't it like he's he's cut some of the flesh from his back to make wings kind of thing and it's and pe- yeah. people are inferring that Lecter is trying to give Clary's clues to Buffalo Bill all throughout. Like one of the etchings in the beginning of, of, of Florence is like seen from the Belvedere, and then Bill lives in Belvedere, Ohio, and you know he does the wings like a moth, and he wears the face while Bill is trying to make a human suit and, and all this kind of stuff. But it just struck me, especially like I think they do the scenes of like Bill reaching out for Clarice at the end really well, like her fumbling in the dark and like the sense of dread that has how close his hand is to her face a couple of times but the actual execution of them shooting each other i think is quite bad but the the sort of action element of of his grand escape i think is actually shockingly well done for a guy that is not an action director and it's probably a scene that like i'm not saying any of it doesn't hold up but like you stack that up against a similar scene now and i think it works as well or better than anything you could see today and like his elaborate escape attempt and and, like hiding out as a corpse and as you said like the shot of him like directing after he's murdered them and (laughs) his sort of very labored breathing as he's beating uh pembry to death rather than it just being effortless because it's like that's the thing she's walked down this this row of of big scary men and very showy flashy men and the scariest one of all is the guy who's just standing very still very calm never blinks an old man who you look him up and down you're like i could kick the shit out of this guy (laughs) and he just is supernaturally just good (laughs) you know like he is just willing to do things that more people don't and it is labored when he beats this guy to death he isn't gonna just win a fist fight but he's a fucked up dude who will like bite your face and and all of this sort of stuff and yeah the iconic you know hopkins pushing for lector to be dressed all in white so he's like angelic as he's like got a face covered in blood and he's beating someone to death and all of that I do love Martha Stewart allegedly broke up with him because of this movie. <laughs> like she she couldn't separate him from Lecter. <laughs> he based it on a friend of his who made everyone uncomfortable because he rarely blinked. <laughs> but imagine being that dude. It's, like, yeah. it's so fascinating to hear stories of Anthony Hopkins because obviously he is someone who is notorious nowadays for being like, he will show up maybe for like one in five projects and actually like give a performance. He's obviously got two Oscar, uh, Oscar wins now for this and for The Father and he's very, very good The Father but he's also renowned for like writing no acting required on scripts like i'm sure he shows up on thor ragnarok and is just like yeah sure i'll just i'll read the lines and it'll be fine yeah i think his odin work tends to work because of hemsworth and uh, hiddleston kind of taking more from him than he's actually giving i think he's trying in thor one and then the other two it's like "Mm." Yeah, but like, I mean, I can't imagine he shows up on the set of Transformers the last night and is like, cool, I'm going to bust out my, yeah. my son's I mean, he's the prototypical, I think I've mentioned it before, like, older actor who just looks lost reading material he doesn't understand, like, because they're just a not roles for older actors and they, they get shoved into, like, genre stuff that is just flying beyond their head. They're having to work yeah. in green screen and, like, he is who I think of when I think of that because he's done it so much and... 
Well, it's, it's the Sean Connery issue where Sean Connery yeah. is turning down scripts like less than a decade after this because he's like, well, I don't understand the Matrix. I don't understand yeah. Lord of the Rings. Did they want it? Oh, they wanted him to be the architect, didn't they? <laughs> Should have been in Skyfall though. And it is sad, like that there aren't these these meaty projects for actors. Like you know, Robert De Niro is another one who just you're just and Al Pacino. You know, you're seeing these people who were like titans of acting, and you just feel kind of sad for them as they show up in these things. <laughs> but well, yeah, it's one of those things where it's like the only time you get to play is when you write an old character, and it's like either yeah. you're writing a movie about what it means to be old, mm-hmm. in which case probably going to be quite sad, or you're doing a comedy where it's like, isn't it funny that this old person's doing this thing? Look, Aubrey Plaza wants to fuck an old man. <laughs> um, but then sometimes, obviously, you end up doing a Christopher Plummer where you get to do, like, Knives Out in the last year of your career, and it's like, okay, cool. Mm. This this is the kind of role that you kind of wish older actors got to have more. And this was... I mean, he talked openly. Like, he had been trying to break out in Hollywood for a long time, and this was his last attempt, and he was fully willing to just go do plays in in London for the rest of his life if this didn't work out and explodes and like so many actors turned it down because it was like I've just done a dark character or like you know not for me kind of thing and like I think John Lithgow is always like oh I was I was first choice or whatever and it's like alright dude shut the fuck up. I mean mean, John Lithgow did get to do this sort of role in Dexter. Is he Trinity in Dexter? He's Trinity killer and he's he's very good as Trinity. I'm sure he's a creepy man. Very different performance though and I do think the theatricality of Anthony Hopkins like stage performances lends itself to this especially in terms of like so we've touched it briefly like Taka Fujimoto shoots a lot of this movies in close-ups yeah. and, and my partner literally turned to me yesterday and was like that must be so hard you have to assume that like there probably is the other actor behind the camera or whatever who is reading the lines to them so they are playing off something but like for a lot of these scenes they are looking dead into the camera yeah I, I think it must be really really hard to act directly to camera like that like so often they they need that person there for coverage and, and like you know to, to play off and, and, and everything and to be able to stare down the barrel of a lens not just you know Lecter's is the big one and, and Jodie Foster does a little bit of it as well but everyone in this movie is basically having to stare down a camera and most of them are pretty good at it but he is by far the best and it's such an iconic set of scenes that it's almost taken for granted now but like this man just staring unblinkingly down a camera and just being like yeah it's so fucking good I to just kind of bring it full circle like I'm sure when they wrote it all down on the page they had no way of knowing that Hannibal Lecter was going to be like arguably the greatest movie villain ever that this is a defining decade defining performance and everything and shapes villains and and a whole genre forever and yet he came and absolutely knocked it out of the park and you end up with a lopsided movie because of it but fuck it (laughs) he's so fucking good and not to do a disservice to to Jodie Foster but again it is one of those things where like the, the thing that she's been asked to do is less flashy and so it's less talked about but I think it's no less impressive Mm. what she does with the material that she's given it's just one of those things where it's just like well of course you're going to look at the man who who has like so many quotable lines who says that he ate someone's liver with some fava beans and Chianti it is a dominating performance but I do think it speaks volumes about the movie that like yes it is incredibly memorable and mean to death and he he comes back to this role twice to diminishing returns Mm -hmm. but there are still elements of this movie that 
that are still quotable outside of him, even though it is like such a such a full throated performance. And we were quoting earlier on, there's like stuff with Buffalo Bill that is just as quotable as some of these other things. And it's mm-hmm. like it is an indelible part of our culture, as we said, in terms of the fact that like this does become the template for TV procedurals. It does influence X Files. I do think it's a high point for pretty much everyone involved's careers. I don't think Jodie Jodie Foster is better than this movie. I don't think Hopkins has ever been better than he has in this movie. I'm surprised Levine didn't parlay this into more because, you know, him parroting her screams back at her but with, like, absolutely zero human emotion it just, like, you know, and, like, the treatment of the dog and, you know, something as simple as when he kidnaps Catherine in the first place, like, directly out of the Ted Bundy playbook of faking an injury to garner sympathy and then he just backs her into the van and just so good. Kind of fucked up that it takes so long for Clarice to take a direct interest in the first victim. I know they say that like, oh, the police have been all over the house. They've been back multiple times and it takes until like quite near the end for her to be like, hmm, maybe he actually knew the first one. Because I mean, obviously serial killers compared to just your random one-off murders tend not to know their victims. But you would think the first one they would and for her to finally go back near the end like that. And uh, I'm sure day one of training is always open up a music box and look for nudes, you know. And like, <laughs> leave them right out on the desk for her father to find next time he goes into his dead daughter's room. <laughs> the other thing I find really interesting about this is obviously there are characters who are in like multiples of these movies like Scott Glenn gets played, uh, Scott Glenn Jack Crawford gets played by Harvey Keitel in, <laughs> in Red Dragon and like Anthony Hill does come back for Red Dragon to play the same role again but Frankie Faison who plays Barney Matthews is the only actor yes. in all three of these movies other than yes. other than Hopkins which is just very uh, amusing to me uh, just the, and is it Julianne Moore takes over as Clarice Julianne Moore takes over as Clarice for Hannibal. Yeah, I just find it very funny that, like, the nice, like, security guy mm-hmm. in the, the mental facility is like, yeah, sure, that's the actor we're going to have back <laughs> through three of these movies. Lecter says his name. He's iconic now. <laughs> Anything else you want to say about um, this movie before in, we wrap up? The most unrealistic thing is a cop shoots him in the leg. <laughs> when he when he's on top of the elevator, you know, fires one. They do say we, they do say we need him alive, but I do like the again him unrealistic. I mean, there are a million tiny things, but just, yeah, I think we've hit everything. And, yeah, uh, so I think, so you've done your quibbles. I think my main quibbles of the movie are just, as like, the weird fat phobianess. Yes, some of the stuff. That size 14, they're all getting referred to, like, they're, like, giants. <laughs> and it's like, and, and even that, I think the sizes then were even smaller than, like, a 14 then would be smaller than a current 14. So it's probably more like a 12 or a 10 or something. Yeah, it, just, like, the weirdness of, like, I mean, obviously, you have Clarice kind of like nodding and smiling when there's like the bit where Bill opens the door and is ah oh, yes the big huge girl who was like in the news and it's like yes yes she was she's a big large. girl yeah, yeah. I get what they're driving at he needs women who have a comparable frame to a man so that he can wear their skin like he can't go for petite women but yeah it is a little bit but I mean this is all of culture and it, it's I'm not saying we've solved it now but it was even more normal to talk about people being fat when they were like probably average or even probably below average I do like that Clarice like just randomly stumbles onto it like she obviously has the clues from Lecter that helps her like connect the dots and like find the friend and find the person who who Bill has killed I just think that some of the dots are like it isn't made clear that Bill how do you get from yeah right how do you get from old lady Chilton or whatever is he old lady Chilton did he kill old lady Chilton did he 
friend this group of people corpse. through their sewing circle. I, she's the corpse in the bathtub. Yeah, I get that. She's the corpse like... in the bathtub. So like, he's obviously like murdered her. But it's like, did he murder her and then stalk this girl? Did yeah. he meet this girl first? Like, exactly. Was he like exploiting their sewing circle to find victims? Like, did he impersonate old lady Chilton after he'd killed her to like, oh yeah, send me whatever, send a letter or whatever, and be like, oh yeah, come come to my house. We'll we'll swap sewing. So like that, all of that is a little bit out there. Yeah, it's it's. I think the book dives into it more. It's one of those things where like I hate to bring it up because it does feel like a cinema sins style <laughs> nitpick plot hole because there is enough in the movie that it does make sense what happens. Yeah. But it's just one of the things where it's like I wish the connective tissue behind her finding the killer and what his reasoning for being in that house in particular was a little bit firmed up. But again, it, it doesn't get in the way of the fact that like the entire sequence is so good of her going down there and just exploring this creepy ass basement and yeah. and the, the shock in realizing that the FBI are afraid of the wrong house and stuff like that. Yeah, closing all the doors is a smart little thing. I love Catherine just, no, you fucking bitch, come back and get me. Like, I don't give a shit. Like, yeah, desperate to get out and everything. Also, like, I mean, she's a junior agent. I don't want her to solve it all herself brilliantly with her unique, brilliant mind, but that Lecter basically spells out everything for her and that they, you know, when she calls Crawford, they've already got him because of the moth thing. And, and you know, very stark that there were only three places offering any kind of transgender operations at the time not that it's great now but three is insane and that like you know they catch him without her i mean he says we wouldn't have caught him without you and they do raid the wrong house but like in on some level it's kind of like everyone else solves it for her i don't know like that only Lecter can, can figure this out and he arguably knows right from the beginning who it is and stuff like that. But again, she is a junior agent and she is the one that ends up at the right house and is the one that kills him and, and all of that. But yeah, I mean, What we really want is, because I watched the, the fourth Fast and Furious movie yesterday just before I watched this and there's a scene <sighs> where, where Dominic Toretto memory palaces like a car crash together based on like the tire treads and stuff like that. And it's Excellent. like, yeah, that's what we want the three to do is to like yeah. stand at a murder scene and a piece of together. I mean, that is literally what Will Graham does in the Hannibal TV show, but, like, he's supposed to be a weird person who can, like, piece together things and get into the minds of criminals. Yeah, um, like, Faris is the iconic one, but, like, Will Graham captured Hannibal and everything like that, and, like, I guess I don't really want to know more, but, like, it is interesting that, like, in these two huge movies, he's already kind of been neutralized. Like, you don't see or know much about him as an active serial killer. He is captured in the first scene of Red Dragon and stuff yeah. like that. And I'm sure that's yeah, like, why... Hannibal Rising the, the, is all about, but... No, it's not. Hannibal oh. Rising is him as, like, a teenager. As a, as a child, yeah, yeah. It's just interesting, yeah, like, so... you know, is he picking at random? Is he punishing people he thinks are bad? Because, obviously, he kills at will to escape, but, like, that's a necessity. But he very clearly has no interest in killing Clarice. I mean, he does set... What's he called? Tooth Fairy or whatever. He does set him yes. on Will Graham in Red Dragon. But, like, is he, as a, as a serial killer in his height before he's been captured, is he somebody who just targets randoms? Does he have a particular profile that he's like yeah that's a person that needs to be killed I think that's one of the most interesting things that Hannibal the TV series does because obviously mm. the stuff before Red Dragon the book is like a paragraph long and it's like Will Graham was stabbed by Hannibal in the process of like capturing him and has been taken off active duty and that's yep. like all the backstory you get is that like yeah. and the Hannibal TV series literally spends two seasons getting to that point right. and diving into it and it's like well Will Graham goes to visit Hannibal and Hannibal is his therapist and is like brainwashing him into like losing time and stuff like that and oh, it's just wow. this okay. <laughs> it's really fucking good and really fucking dark and like obviously like there's just this homoerotic tension between the two of them where it's like at any minute you could buy them either 
starting to have sex all like kill each other and you wouldn't be surprised at either of them it's a fine line isn't it it's a fine line but like the season two finale of hannibal is like one of my favorite season finales of a tv show ever it's just mm. a fantastic payoff to two seasons worth of build up to a point and then i do i don't want to say season three is bad but season three having to go to like preordained material sucks a little bit out of the tension out like where they just have so much free reign to basically build up what hannibal's mo is what his relationship to Graham is and basically just build this entire universe that they mm. they get to do whatever they want with and the cooking scenes are fantastic even if exactly in mind you have to remember that like it's probably human that he's cooking but like <laughs> but at least he's pairing it with nice stuff he's got Ben Appetit magazine in his cell like he knows what he's doing cool. well then and, that's, and that is our piece on Sansa Lambs yeah very freeform but it worked <laughs> Yeah, this is the. I mean, I mean like, that's the thing is like, because because this is so heavily indebted to procedurals. It's like everyone knows what this is, where it's like you find a clue, you investigate the clue. Maybe there's a red herring when you investigate the clue, and it just like it, it is so firmly embedded in the culture now, down to the point where like there are countless murder podcasts that are like maybe not devoted to this, to this, but are like people trying to solve decade-old cold cases and stuff like that, and serial killing and this kind of stuff is just so I don't want to say passe, but like an actual. <laughs> pastime for people now yeah 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 to uh debatable uh merits or morality or whatever as i said at the top like to have watched early x files recently like it is it is crazy because i mean for a show that is its calling card is the sci-fi element a huge amount of it is just them trying to catch serial killers in like you know rural areas kind of thing it is so like this and and gillian anderson is so 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 reminiscent of Jody, you know not the strong accent obviously but it's crazy and like it's one of those that it's like it's more iconic than i think can ever be expressed because it's the kind of thing you come to it late and like you realize you know half of it without having seen it kind of thing. but it still works for like my partner last night was just yeah. so incredibly tense during that entire final buffalo bill scene where it's like yeah. she literally turned to me at one point and goes like she's not gonna die Bam! Uncut gems. Can we just have a YouTube series of you just filming her in the last sort of twenty <laughs> seconds of movie? <laughs> I'll see if I can do it for the scene that we're in the movie we're doing next week because yes. next week we are covering the youngest best director nomination ever with John Singleton's Boys in the Hood, a remarkably young man when he did this movie that is still incredibly relevant nowadays. It should be a good time. It should be less human suits in that one a couple i think i think there's a one yeah fewer but just 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 not as many okay matthew so that's a sign off yes will there be movies the calling card of a good sign off is calling it a sign off <laughs> i will tell you if there are movies but it is quid pro quo benjamin you must tell me about your childhood first god no i don't want to revisit that bye everyone <laughs>